Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. As you know, we're in this continuing series on the epistle, the book of 1 John. Today's part 12. We're going to look today in chapter 3 on how John defines the marks of a Messianic believer, of a Yeshua follower. And if anyone here was a guest today, when I say Yeshua, that's the Hebrew name for Jesus. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, and we have it on the overhead as well. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who doesn't do what's right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you've heard from the the beginning, that we should love one another. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in them. This is how we know what love is. Yeshua the Messiah, he laid down his life for us. And therefore, we are to lay down our lives for one another, for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love just with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Amen. This passage, this whole passage is about being in the family of God. And one of the key tests for whether you know you're in his family is whether the love of God has flooded your heart and created in you a supernatural love for others and especially for fellow believers. In the beginning of chapter 3, Uh, As we spent a whole message on a few weeks ago, uh, we're told that believers, that Yeshua followers, Jesus followers, have been adopted into God's family. So look at 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. As believers in Messiah, you are adopted into God's family. Uh, You are legally adopted through the blood of Messiah. By how? By you turning from your sin and turning from yourself and turning to Yeshua and his death and resurrection and trusting in him. So adoption means that you're saved by grace. Uh, you know, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, my sister adopted a baby girl from China. Uh, and my wife's sister adopted two baby boys uh, from Guatemala. Uh, these babies didn't ask my sister or Elizabeth's sister to adopt them. <laughs> They didn't do anything to merit being adopted. Rather, it was an act of grace and mercy on them to be adopted. And now that these kids are grown, uh, they realize the life they were rescued from in these orphanages in their native countries. And hopefully they're going to say thank you to their adoptive parents, uh, to my sister and her husband and Elizabeth's sister and her husband. Hopefully they'll say something like this. I had no idea what was happening at the time that I was adopted, but thank you so much for doing it, for loving me and choosing me and rescuing me. 
and bringing me into your family as your son, as your daughter. And that's how we should be as Yeshua followers. We are saved by God's grace and mercy. Well, we hardly know what's going on at the time, uh, at the time that he comes to us, because he makes the first move. Not because we're so loving or so worthy or so righteous, but simply because he is gracious to us. It's a free gift. We don't achieve it. We simply receive it. Our salvation is, rec- is received, not achieved. And we receive it through repentance and trusting in Yeshua and submitting your life to him. So look at Luke 9.23. Whoever wants to be my disciple, Yeshua says, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So on the one hand, it's an act of free grace. But on the other hand, you must respond to it. Yeshua says you must deny yourself and take up your cross, meaning die to self, and follow him, follow Yeshua, surrender your life to him. Submit to his lordship and wholly follow him as your king and redeemer and lord. And salvation, adoption, is not only an act of grace, it's also a legal transaction. It happens once and for all in your life at a certain discrete point in time. Uh, there's a moment in which the papers are signed, if you will. <laughs> there's a moment in which you're adopting a, a son, in which, a moment in which he's not your son, uh, and that he is your son. There's a moment in time in which you cross the line. In the same way for believers, there's a moment in which you pass from not being a child of God to now being a child of God. Now, in our, pastor, our passage here, John's continuing to talk about the family of God. And uh, I'd, like, I'd like us today to look at, at three things that John tells us here in the overhead uh, about the family of God. First, uh, at verse 10, he tells us everybody is in some spiritual family, and that ultimately there's only two. And then secondly, he says it's family consciousness, which is the mainspring, which is the engine of life at Yeshua, the thing that makes you live like a Yeshua follower, the thing that empowers you in your life, uh, with the Lord, is a consciousness of being in God's family. This internal witness of the Spirit that you are God's child. Uh, that's the power that drives you. And then thirdly, that love is the central mark uh, and the main way in which you know you really are in God's family. So first, look at John, 1 John 3, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. John's saying here, Hear me well, there is no middle ground. There is no other way of salvation than Yeshua, and therefore there is no other family other than these two. Everyone is in a spiritual family. Everyone is in a certain spiritual condition. Now, lots of secular people, they love to say, well, you're a Messianic believer, Uh, you're a Christian, you're a Messianic Jew, Uh, you have faith, you're religious, but not me. I'm not religious. Uh, I'm not a religious spiritual type. Uh, I have trouble believing. I'm naturally skeptical and agnostic. I don't believe. I don't have faith. It's just not part of my makeup. It's not who I am. You took a leap of faith, and I'm happy if it works for you. But that's not me. Uh, I can't do that. I'm not religious. I'm not spiritual. I don't believe. But this text tells us that is totally wrong. Everyone is religious. Everyone 
is spiritual. Everyone is in one of two spiritual camps. And fundamentally, all the myriad of spiritual and religious expressions ultimately boil down to one of these two camps or the other. Everyone is religious. Now, modern secular people say, I believe anyone has a right to make up their minds for themselves of of what's moral for them. I'm not a religious person. Uh, I believe everyone has the right to to make their own decision of what's right or wrong for them. Morality is just based on your own personal experience. But to say that uh, is based on a religious premise. The moment you say that, something like that, you're in essence basing it on your belief that there's no judgment day, that there's no judge, that there won't be a judge who stands and judges everyone on the last day based on eternal, immutable standards of right and wrong. The premise is based on rejecting that. Uh, All the prophets uh, in the Bible and, and Yeshua himself say there will be a judgment day. You can't prove there won't be. Uh, uh, If you claim there's no judgment day, that is a religious belief. You're basing your whole life on it, and you can't prove it. You're basing your whole eternal destiny on it, and you can't prove there's no judgment day. So that's a religious position that you're taking. And these religious premises have to do with, is there a God? Uh, uh, is Is there an afterlife? Is there right and wrong, et cetera? So as soon as you say... I think everybody has to make up their minds for themselves about their, mor- their morals. That's a religious statement. And people say, oh, I wish I could believe like you do. Uh, I just don't have your faith. Don't be ridiculous. You've all taken a leap of faith. <laughs> you're, you're assuming by faith, for example, that you are competent to run your own life. You're assuming that you can be your own judge, uh, that there is no final judge, and that you can be your, your own ruler of your own life. You're assuming you can, you can run your own life apart from God. You're assuming you can decide what's right or wrong for you. And these are profoundly religious statements. And really, there's only two religions. You can either decide uh, that, that God is my judge, or I'm my own judge. Either I'm living for the Lord to serve him, or I'm living to serve myself. Either I'm confessing that only God is competent to run my life or only I'm competent to run my life. Now, these are not scientific propositions. Uh, these are faith premises, uh, and you're betting your whole life on them. And the first created being to make this self-determination and religious independence and rebellion against divine authority, and, uh, his, and this was his religion, this was the devil. And he's the first created being to say, I'm competent to run my own life uh, on my own. He said to God, just take your hands off. So that's one option, to run your own life, your way, answerable to no one. And the other option is to say to the Lord, thy will be done. So there's your choice, to say, thy will be done or my will be done. Ultimately, these are the only two choices in your life. They're the only two bases on which to run a life. And they're both profoundly religious and profoundly spiritual. And when you say, my will be done, you are imitating Satan. Look again, 1 John 3, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. 
This is saying there's ultimately only two religions on, on the overhead. You must choose one or the other. There is no middle ground. And they're both religious. They're both religions. Uh, they're both spiritual constructs. And realize you're betting your life and your destiny on one or the other of these religions. The religion of human achievement or the religion of God's grace through faith. So please, none of this nonsense when you say, oh, that, uh, you say that I'm religious, but you're not. Uh, that, that I had a leap of faith, uh, but you haven't. Whether you realize it or not, we're all leaping. We've all leapt. We're all in some spiritual family. Uh, It's up to you to figure out which one you're in. And John says you're all following either in the footsteps of the devil or Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, I mean, who said to the Father in Luke 22, uh, 42, he said, not my will, Lord, but thine be done. Again, 1 John 3, verse 10. This is how you know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what's right is not God's child nor is anyone who doesn't love their brother and sister. There are the children of God and the children of the devil. There are no other kinds of children. Now, Yeshua got people very upset when he talked about this. He told the religious leaders, look at this in John eight forty four. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Yeshua said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you don't believe in me. You're not willing to let me run your life. And they said, that's right, uh, because we're children of Abraham. And Yeshua said, no, you're not. You're the children of the devil. And the devil was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. You're either my children or you're his, the devil's children. So on the overhead, number one, we're all in some spiritual family. Now, secondly, number two, we're also told here that, that, that the mainspring of a believer's life is the consciousness of the family that you're in. Again, look at our, our, our verse, 1 John 3, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who doesn't do what's right isn't God's child, nor is anyone who doesn't love their brother and sister. Now, being in God's family is not based on what I'm going to call moralism or behaviorism, uh, on doing good deeds, on being a good person. The Bible, yes, the Bible commands you to love one another and to tell the truth, and to be generous to the poor, and to honor your father and your mother, uh, and to be kind to others. Uh, don't envy. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Be pure. But the, on the overhead, the question is why. Why should you live this way? Uh, and all other religions and all other philosophies say, do this in order to become what you want to be. But Yeshua faith says, Live like this because you already have attained the new creation life. And now be and live out who you are. The Bible never preaches behaviorism. Uh, Just do it. No. The Bible says, look who you are if you are indeed in Messiah Yeshua. Uh, If his his spirit has really truly uh, uh, resides within you and has transformed you and regenerated you, you're a child of God. And that's why you should live righteously, because you're his. You're a son or a daughter of the king. That's why you should love your neighbor. Look at what uh, the Messiah has done for you. Uh, Look at who you are in him. You are a new creation with a new heart and a new spirit, uh, indwelled by the spirit of Messiah himself. So on the overhead, 
The gospel is that you are so sinful that God had to die for you. The Son of God had to die for you. But at the same time, you were so loved and valued that he was willing to do so. He lived the life you should have lived. And he died the death that you deserved to die. He paid the price that you could never pay. And so now, if you turn from your sin, and you turn from yourself, and you turn to him, Yeshua, your sins are put away. And Yeshua accepts you into his family. Not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of his works. That's the gospel. Now, if you reject this, you either have a works-based religion of truth without grace, or a lawless religion of grace without truth. You either end up a Pharisee on one extreme uh, or a carnal, worldly libertine on the other extreme. Truth without grace says, be good, and then God will love you. Uh, You are doing good in order to try to become a child of God. And if you believe in the other extreme, grace without truth, then God's love is without holiness. Uh, or purity, or righteousness. Uh, You do what you want to do, and nobody, not even God, can tell you what's right or wrong for you. So if you have performance-based moralism on the one extreme, which is truth without grace, uh, or subjective and relativistic individualism on the other extreme, which is grace without truth, in both cases, you are frantically trying to become what you want to be. And that's the motivation for your behavior. But the gospel is neither truth without grace nor grace without truth, but rather a perfect marriage of the two. The Bible says this of Yeshua. Look at John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. On the overhead, please. Uh, next slide, John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the, the, glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And that means that if you're in Messiah Yeshua, you've already become a child of God legally. And now you're just exhorted to live out that new life within you. You're not told to do this to become a child of God. Rather, the scriptures say, do this because you are a child of God. And these are two radically different worldviews and motivations. Live for, for God because of the glory of who you are in him. And it's also evidence that you truly are born again, of Yeshua having transformed your life. And seeing this and walking this out gives you the greatest assurance of your faith, that you truly do have true saving faith. First John 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what we shall be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Messiah appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. If you're in Messiah Yeshua, you are destined for glory. The Lord at his coming is going to make you something that's utterly glorious. You're going to become like him, the scriptures say. Then look at the next verse, 1 John 3, 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves even as he is pure. This hope in Messiah's return will help purify your life here and now. This is a great motivation for holiness, that even now, by how you live, you're getting ready. You're preparing for one day to meet him 
Panim el panim, we say in Hebrew, face to face. And so if you ever fall into sin, you immediately realize, this isn't me. This is not who I am anymore. Uh, Lord, help me to crucify the old man. Lord, 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 I, I want to keep my eyes, I want to keep my gaze on you. Ever looking forward with anticipation to the day of your return. Help me to remain walking with you, Lord. Uh, and in your holy love. First John 3, verse 1. Behold, what great love the Father's lavished on us. That we should be called his children. And that's who we are. Lord, you've lavished your love on me. You've made me your child. Now help me to walk faithfully in that love. So on the overhead, number one, there's only two spiritual families in the world. Number two, the, the, the driving engine and the force in your life is the knowledge that you are a child of God. And now finally, number three, the central way you know you're in the family of God is love. Look at 1 John 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message you've heard from the very beginning. We should love one another. We know we've passed from death to life because we love each other. And 1 John three sixteen, this is how we know what love is. Yeshua the Messiah laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, why does it say you've heard this from the beginning? When Messianic Judaism first burst on the scene in that old Greco-Roman world, it, it, was, it was immediately amazing to the people all around because of its love. The sign that there was something real going on here, the sign there was something vital going on here, this, this amazing love that the first believers shared. So, for example, Antioch uh, was one of the most ethnically diverse cities uh, in, the, in, in the world at that time. As whereas most cities had walls around the outside of the city, Antioch had walls on the inside, separating the different ethnic groups from one another. So, for example, there, there was a Syrian section uh, and a Jewish section and an African section uh, and a Greek section. There's walls between them to keep them away from each other because these were different groups of people and you just, you just didn't mix. But Acts 11 tells us something amazing. Look at Acts 11 beginning in verse 20. Some believers from Cyprus and Cyrene who had come to faith in Jerusalem went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks as well as the Jews, telling them the good news about the Lord Yeshua. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the assembly in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and Jerusalem sent Barnabas to go check it out. And Barnabas was amazed, uh, and he verified all that had occurred there. Now, why was Barnabas so amazed? Because people were coming to faith in Yeshua across the walls. And they were worshiping together across the walls. The walls were coming down. We were told in Acts 11, this was the very first place where the believers in Yeshua were called Christians, which, is, which in Greek simply means a follower of Messiah, or one who belongs to Messiah. Why? Because nobody had a word for, for what was happening. Nobody had a word for this, where so many different ethnic groups were believing in the Jewish Messiah. When the early Yeshua followers were all Jewish, it was considered simply a Jewish sect. But now with all these Gentiles coming to faith in the Jewish Messiah, the world had never seen anything like this. 
The world had never seen ethnic and racial and national barriers coming down like this. They'd never seen people who got a hold of a truth that was so powerful that it relativized all their ethnic pride uh, and their cultural ethnocentrism uh, and their superiority so that now they were able to look at, at, at people from other races and other classes, even the most despised people by their own races and classes, and say to them, brother, sister, no one had ever seen this. So much so that they had to come up with a new word for it. Uh, and Acts 13 tells us that when the congregation at Antioch uh, chose the first team of, of teachers, uh, one was, uh, one was uh, Simeon called Niger. He was African. Niger means black. The second was Lucius of Cyrene. He was Tunisian from North Africa, probably brown. The third was Manian from, from the family of Herod, who was an Edomite who had converted to Judaism. And being of the family of Herod, he, he was royalty. The fourth was Barnabas, a, a Cypriot from Cyprus. And the fifth was Paul, a Jew. What's going on here? There was no word to describe it. And that's why here in 1 John, John can say, 1 John 3, verse 11, this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. From the very beginning, the world has always been shocked by the love of Yeshua followers for one another. Across all racial and ethnic and class and education and language barriers. The world says something is going on here. Maybe these people really are the children of God. Maybe something supernatural really is happening here. Because we've never seen a religion like this. A famous historian, uh, Kendall Scott Lederet, uh, wrote a book on why Christianity, why Messianic Judaism... Uh, one of, of hundreds of religions vying in the marketplace of ideas uh, in the Roman Empire, and it wasn't well-backed, uh, it wasn't well-connected, why did it completely sweep away every other one? Historians have a lot of trouble with this. Why did Yeshua faith, Messianic faith, win? And Lateran identifies five areas in which this new Messianic faith was unique uh, and superior, uh, though that still doesn't totally explain it. Uh, here's an excerpt from the fourth of the, of the five reasons. He says, fourth, the reason for Christianity's success was that it was totally inclusive, far more inclusive than any of the other competitor religions or any other religion had ever been. It attracted all races and classes. Uh, the pagan deities were typically confined to specific regions and nations. And even in the days of its most active proselytizing activities, Judaism never overcame its racial boundaries. The convert had to become culturally Jewish. But Yeshua faith gloried in its appeal to Jew, Gentile, African, barbarian. The philosophies of Greece and Rome, on the other hand, appealed only to the educated, but could never win the masses. And it was actually one of the charges against Messianic faith that it drew the lowly and the uneducated multitudes. And that the central teaching was so simple that anyone could understand it. Yet Christianity, Messianic Judaism, also developed a philosophy that converted some of the greatest minds of history. Yeshua faith, too, it was also for both sexes, and women uh, were active in its ministry. Whereas two other religions that were among its main competitors were almost completely exclusively for men. Finally, the mystery religions of the day were mainly for the rich 
because the initiation into these religions was expensive. No other religion could take in so many groups and strata of society. But this doesn't really fully explain it. Saying why Christianity, why Nessic Judaism succeeded. Uh, for the historian, uh, most of them must still ask why such unprecedented inclusiveness appeared in Yeshua faith when it had not appeared in any other religion to date. The one tenable explanation of Messianic faith's inclusiveness with its teaching of the uniqueness of Yeshua, Jesus. If Yeshua was not just a teacher showing us the way to salvation, but the Son of God who accomplishes salvation, then members of both sexes and all races, the learned and the ignorant, the able and the non, might share in the salvation made possible by Messiah. Wow. Do you see what he's saying? He's giving you an historic evidence for what John is saying here in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Messianic faith, it swept through the Roman Empire because it gave us a truth that brought down all the barriers. What was that truth? That Yeshua was the unique son of God. He wasn't like Moses or Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna. And that's why Messianic believers loved one another across the walls. They love one another in ways that made people say, yes, maybe these people are the children of God. Messianic faith taught that Yeshua was, was the Son of God, that God come in the flesh, who accomplished salvation for you. So it doesn't matter what your record is. It doesn't matter, matter whether you're high or low, rich or poor, upper class or lower class, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. You all need salvation. And in Yeshua, you all can have it equally. And John says one of the key marks of the genuineness of your faith is you have love for one another across all these barriers and walls and divides. You heard this from the very beginning. We love one another. That's one of the key ways you know that you are a true believer. You've passed from death to life as demonstrated by having this unparalleled love that fills and overflows, and energizes, and animates, and motivates you. First John 3, 16. Thank you. And this is how we know what love is. Yeshua the Messiah laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The way you know you're in the family of God is that people get along in the family of God. Uh, who can't otherwise get along any, anywhere else. <laughs> and that's why we here at Esclaim, this is who we are and who we need to be more and more and more. And it's the gospel of Yeshua alone that creates this kind of supernatural love. And this means what? This means Yeshua must be your life. First John 4, uh, verse 7. Dear friends, well, let's love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who doesn't love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives within us. And his love is made complete uh, in us. And then 1 John four nineteen, We love because he first loved us. If, we say, if you say you love God, uh, but you hate a brother... 
You're a liar. Wow. For if, you, for if you don't love a fellow believer whom you've seen, you can't love God whom you've not seen. And he's given you this command. Those who love God must also love one another. And again, what this means is if you are a born-again believer, is that Yeshua is now your life. God the Father sent his son into the world so that you might live through him. Yeshua is your life. He's not just part of your life. He's not your life just here on Shabbat or when you're here at shul. You don't compartmentalize your life. So you have, I have work and family and school and sports and entertainment and relationships, and then I've got Yeshua over here. No. If you are a true believer, Yeshua is your life. He's your everything. That's what it means to be a follower of Yeshua. Your life is saturated by Yeshua. Look at Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Messiah, and I no longer live, but Messiah lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Yeshua is my life. He needs to be your life. So I want you to ask yourself today, am I loving like Yeshua? It's easy to do so here at shul, but when you're at home and nobody's watching you, is there real anger that comes out in you uh, against your husband, against your wife, against your kids, against your parents? You never treat someone here at shul that way, but you're treating your family like that. These things ought not to be. Or on the other hand, maybe you're 100% focused on your family and you don't serve or volunteer or ever here at shul. Or maybe, maybe you're holding a grudge uh, or unforgiveness against a fellow brother or sister. Do you know what the scriptures say when you do that? The scriptures say you are giving permission to the tormentors to come and torment you. You are commanded, both in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, to go and make it right with anyone either you have an offense against or anyone who has an offense against you. Either way. First John says you can't love God whom you've not seen if you hate a brother or sister who you have seen. And by the way, if you try to weasel out of this by saying, oh, I don't consider him my brother or sister in the Lord, we well, issue a command you to love your enemies too. <laughs> and he says, love your neighbor. He says that he tells us everyone, even the dreaded Samaritans, are, are you a neighbor? So we all need to examine ourselves and ask, am I truly loving my brother and my sister and my family and my neighbor with Yeshua's self-sacrificial love? It's altruistic servant love. And if your heart is hard, cry out, Yeshua, please change my heart. Cry out to the Lord uh, to help you love like he loves to forgive others like he has forgiven you, to desire what he desires, and to live a life pleasing to him. Do you want your prayers answered? The key to answered prayer is Yeshua's heart overtaking your heart, such that you love what he loves, and you desire what he desires, and you live to please him. And this transforms how you pray, because then you pray for what you know will please God. You pray for his name to be glorified in whatever situation you're praying about. You pray for his will to be done. Now, Lord, please glorify yourself in my life should be your prayer. And God is pleased with that kind of prayer. 
Ask the Lord to show you, Lord, how do I need to repent of hate in my heart, of anger in my heart, of indifference in my heart, of lack of love in my heart. Lord, in my heart, in my marriage, in my family, in my workplace, in my relationships, in my life, am I selflessly seeking the good of others? Am I being Messiah to them, showing them your love? Let me close with a story about, about divine love and selflessness. It comes from C.S. Lewis' famous book, The Great Divorce. It's a fictional story. What's it about? It's about a busload of people from hell on, on a bus tour who come up to the outskirts of heaven. And the people in heaven come down to try to talk to them and to convince them to repent of their sins and to come to God. And the person narrating the story has his divine guide. Uh, and the, the guy is explaining these things to him. You can, that's not up yet, so you can take, turn that off a second. Uh, and the narrator says, uh, uh, the narrator sees these spirits uh, coming down from, he- from heaven. And at one point, the narrator sees this big, beautiful spirit of a woman. Gorgeous. Beautiful beyond bearing. And she's attended on all sides by boys and girls and men and women all dancing around her and singing her praises. And her love is flowing out into them. And their love is flowing back into her. And on the overhead, uh, the text says this. Her beauty was unbearable. And the narrator looks at her and turns to his guide and says, Ah, is it, or, or is it, not at all, said my guide. It's someone, somebody you've never heard of. I thought it was someone very famous. Oh, no, 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 no. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. And she lived in a tiny town in north of Britain called Golders Green. But she seems to be a person of particular importance. I, says my guide, she is one of the great ones. But haven't you heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two very different things? Well, who are all these people uh, dancing and flowing, uh, throwing flowers before her? And who are, where are, all these, who are all these people around her? Ah, says my guide, those are her sons and daughters. Every young man or boy who met her became her son. Every girl or woman who met her was her daughter. Well, I said, wasn't that hard on their own parents? Oh, no, said my guide. There are those who steal other people's children, but her motherhood was a different kind. Those upon whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them even more. Everyone who came near her had their place in her love. Uh, In her, they became themselves And now the abundance of love that she has in Messiah and in the Father flows out into them. There's joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as yonder lady, to waken all the dead things of the universe to life. Wow. Do you hear this? This woman was a nobody. She had no career. She was Sarah Smith of Golders Green. But when she got to heaven, she was one the greatest women who ever lived. Everyone basked in her love. She became one of the great hearts of heaven. Why? She had a vision for life in which she very quietly eschewed the wisdom of this world and said, I'm going to live to give to others the love that I have from the Lord. And as a result, she was, became one of the great ones. Haven't you heard that fame in heaven is very different than fame on earth? So I want to encourage you today to say to the Lord, I want to be famous only in the eyes and the mind of heaven.
of you, Lord. Because I want to care only about what you, Yeshua, think. And to give to others what you have given to me. Uh, And to empty myself to love and serve others as you, Yeshua, have emptied yourself to love and to serve me. Because that's what matters to me. And if you do that, you will have a Yeshua-centered vision for your life. And you will become also one of the great ones of heaven. Amen. Let's stand and pray. And the music team to come on up. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Thank you for this word today. Lord, we pray, Lord, we pray today that your love would just flood our hearts and overflow uh, and, and create within us a supernatural love for others and especially for our fellow, our fellow brothers and sisters uh, in you, Lord. Lord, you loved us when we had nothing to commend ourselves to your love. And you chose us and rescued us and adopted us into your family. Now may that same love that you have for me manifest in my life to others. Because I'm filled with your spirit. Because I am now a new creation uh, in you, Lord. Uh, The old hates uh, and resentments and grudges and bitterness have passed away. And all things are now new. Because you give me a new heart and a new spirit. You take away my my selfish, stubborn heart of stone. And you give me a heart of flesh. A heart that's soft and tender towards you, you Lord Yeshua. uh, And to your word and the leading of your spirit. So Lord, help me today to deny myself. And take up my cross daily, dying to self. And to wholly and fully following you. To live a holy and righteous life. Because I'm your child. Lord Yeshua, I turn from my sin. I turn from myself. And I turn to you. My hope is in you, Yeshua. And this hope purifies me. Lord, help me to love my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Help me, Lord, to be quick to repent. Quick to forgive. You tell us, Lord, you know you've passed from death to life if you love one another. So, Lord, help me to show that love by laying down my life for others. Even as you have laid down your life for me. Lord Yeshua, you are my life. And I pray this all in your name, Hashem Yeshua, in Jesus' name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.